This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the remedy phase is underway in a federal courtroom after a judge ruled in November that conditions at the David Wade Correctional Facility were unconstitutional. We'll get an update. And a much lauded program to address gun violence in the city has ceased almost all operations after a cooperative endeavor agreement with one of the office's fiscal agents lapsed at the end of 2022. Those stories, insight and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, the one and only criminal justice reporter, Nick Krastel. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. I guess I mean that literally, one and only, because it's just you and me, man. Um, how are you? I'm doing good. You're busy watching a trial. So we've been following this story for a long time, the conditions at David Wade Correctional Facility, which um, were found to be unconstitutional and violating civil rights of some of the prisoners back in November. The remedy phase of the trial is now underway. Can you give us an update on how it's going? Sure. The The trial started on Tuesday. And the remedy phase is basically to determine whether or not some of the conditions that were found unconstitutional last year, which were kind of really stark and harsh solitary confinement conditions, and also a lack of mental health care at the facility, um, whether or not those things are, are still continuing to exist at, at, at the prison, and if so, what needs to be done to, to fix them. So the civil rights attorneys that, that brought this case in the first place are basically saying that there have been some minor adjustments to, to both the conditions and, and the mental health care, but that overall nothing's really changed, that you know the, the things that they were alleging and the things that the judge found unconstitutional um, are still, for the most part, persisting. So this is <clears throat> this is prisoners being kept in their cells for for twenty three hours a day, let out, you know, uh, for an hour of recreation and and a few times a week to shower. Um, very little programming or counseling available to them, um, and, and very uh, few opportunities to see a psychiatrist or any other um, mental health. Uh, professional. Mm-hmm. And and the prison, you know, and, and some of their pre-trial filings and we're seeing in the early days of the, the trial are kind of pointing to a few things that they've tweaked, um, including uh, reducing the, the overall number of restrictive housing beds. They've, they've created kind of a new wing of the prison for what they're calling working segregation, where prisoners are able to be out of their cell for, you know, two hours a day rather than one. They get some group programming and classes um, and a few amenities. They're able to able to watch TV some. And they're pointing to, to uh, some of these things as as proof that, that hmm. uh, you know, they've they've changed their ways. And, you know, I think I think we'll kind of see to what to what degree the judge uh, thinks these are sufficient changes. How much does this part of the um process rely on witness testimony it is all witness testimony so so far we've had several uh security staff at the prison who work in the restrictive housing uh units testifying um and we have had one prisoner who is being held in restrictive housing testify about about his experience and right now before i uh, jumped on this call there the security expert that was retained by 
disability rights, who is the, the attorneys for the plaintiffs, uh, was on the stand testifying about his tour of the prison and what he saw um, when and, and his discussions with prisoners there. How about prisoner testimony? Yeah, so the, like I said, there was one one prisoner who testified um, is a man who who has been in restrictive housing at David Wade for over a year now and was was placed in restrictive housing right when he got there because he had had write-ups at, at the previous facility he was at. But since that time, you know, he hasn't had any write-ups. So recently, just, just at the end of last year, he was moved to what I was telling you is this, a, a working segregation facility, uh, uh, classification, um, which, you know, he said, he, he was very frustrated with the fact that despite the fact that he had been, you know, this whole year and he hadn't had any disciplinary write-ups, he was still being held in a cell for, you know, almost, you know, the vast majority of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he, he wasn't able to speak to mental health professionals. He said that when he asked the prison security staff to, to speak to someone, they told him to shut up and go to sleep. Um, and this is someone, you know, who has been, he was diagnosed with, with bipolar disorder, um, and ADHD. He described, you know, often feeling like the cell was closing in on him, um, and, and, and feeling, you know, a sense of panic. And, you know, these are the kind of stories that, that we heard at the initial phase of the trial, um, where, where people were, were placed in these conditions and, and it often, appeared as if it was exacerbating their their already present mental illnesses. So I'm not I'm not sure if there's if there's going to be more prisoner testimony. Okay. Um I think that I think it's likely there will be, but that's what we've heard so far. And you expect this to go on for about a month? Yeah, I think it's scheduled for four weeks, although I think that is subject to, to change, I think, based on um, how much they get through uh, in, in the earlier days. And if the outcome, if if the plaintiffs prevail, then there need there needs to be more done to address the issues. Then do we do we have this redundancy? Is there remedy phase part two? I think what, what the plaintiffs would like is a sort of consent judgment, which, you know, we've seen it at the New Orleans jail where there are monitors that are are keeping the court up to date on improvements that are made at the prison. Yep. There's some sort of agreement about what needs to be done and then regular check-ins with the court and with the other parties about how those things are being implemented and whether or not the, the necessary changes are actually being made. So it would be this sort of supervised, uh, this period of supervision after this this trial there wouldn't necessarily be another another trial like like this where you know you're calling a lot of witnesses but but the litigation would sort of be ongoing okay all right well thanks and i'm sure we'll talk about it after it's over to see what what the judge rules you're listening to behind the lens i'm carolyn heldman my guest this week is criminal justice reporter nick krastel Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. The strength of The Lens lies in the highly qualified editorial and research staff, as well as a collaborative network of affiliated organizations. 
please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Okay, you had a big story this week. Another big story this week, uh, the Mayor's Office of Gun Violence Prevention. It appears that um, this was a program that she launched in 2021, and it appears that it has ceased operations, hasn't been operating for a while now, and the, the staff is not being paid, perhaps. Can you tell us what, first of all, I guess, tell us what this, pro- remind us what the program was, what it was meant to, to do, and what's happening now. Sure, the Office of Gun Violence Prevention was, like you said, it was launched by the mayor in 2021, and it was her sort of comprehensive public health approach to gun violence. And and she said that, that she hoped that it would, would meaningfully reduce gun violence in the city, uh, you know, within the next 50 years. So it's kind of this big, kind of ambitious program, although it's also received a lot of criticism. So the office consists of, of several programs. Um, there's a, a, a youth training program that kind of connects youth to to job opportunities. There is a program that works with people coming home from from prison or jail um, to to provide them transitional work opportunities um, and and get kind of set up. And then there is a crisis intervention team. And that is sort of the the mayor's version of it was called ceasefire under under Mitch Landrieu, but uh, a group of People and it's mostly social workers now who respond to shootings and and go to the hospitals if there's a, a shooting victim there to provide services for them, housing, uh, mental health services, um, employment, and, and the idea is to kind of you know connect with these people who are who are most at risk for being a victim again of gun violence or or being involved in some way and and intervening and try and try and stop it from from you know spiraling. Um, so that's kind of a rough outline of what the office was was doing before some of the operations stopped uh, at the beginning of the year. Okay. And before we get into what you were able to discover about the operation stopping, how successful were each of these planks, these these programs? Well, that's a very good question. Um, you know, the mayor's office touted them as, as being successful, um, in particular, the uh, Jumpstart program, which is the the program where kids, like said, uh, yeah, with the kids, but the city council has been very critical of this office for not being able to provide concrete data about how successful they've been in intervening in in potentially violent situations, and you know have been frustrated that they haven't been able to get a very clear picture of what's going on at the office, um, and they've they've been critical of kind of how the office was created, which was via this executive order and run through a cooperative endeavor agreement with with several uh, um, other organizations. And they've been critical that that there hasn't been enough transparency over how money is being spent, over how successful the, the um, programs have been. So there's some criticism around whether or not they're successful, transparency, um, effectiveness, all of it. And now you you were able to discover that in fact the basically the entire operation has has sort of fallen apart. It hasn't even really been operating. What did you discover? Yeah, that's right. So the bulk of the employees that that were working in the office were working 
uh, as part of this crisis intervention team. And they were sort of both employed with the office, but they were getting paid through the Urban League of Louisiana, um, which had served as a fiscal agent for uh, the office and before that for ceasefire under, under Mayor Mitch Landrieu. And it had this role for a while. Um, Wait, before you go but, on, will you explain why that was a necessary or what was it necessary? Why did they have that agency in there in the first place? So my understanding, and I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that, that the city will sometimes use uh, fiscal agents for programs in order to better attract foundation money. Um, and I think this, I, like I said, I'm, I'm not an expert on it, but what I've been told is that some foundations would prefer to give money to an, an organization that's outside of the city government. Right. Um, to better ensure that it's actually being used for the purposes that they've given it to. Okay. But in ad- in addition to that, though, a fiscal agent doesn't have to go through a lot of the, the procurement and civil service requirements that a city agency would. Um, so, you know, I think this is part of the, the criticism that, that uh, has been leveled at, at this office in particular is that, you know, it's, it's able to get around some of the uh, uh, regulations and oversight that would be required of a of hmm. a kind of more traditional city agency. Okay, which also raises the eyebrows of the city council too. If uh, it, right. you can see why they would want to cut the red tape, but then again, it's it raises some some questions. So right. Okay. Um, all right. So so that agency, the Urban League, they had been acting as the intermediary but they were n- no longer doing that work. Yeah, so what happened was that the, the office was planning on, on changing fiscal agents. And they were going to change from the Urban League that had been doing this for a while to Forward Together New Orleans. Why? Which is, was the mayor's Why? Mm-hmm. That's a good question and, and one that I haven't really gotten a clear answer to um, at this point. But that is what, you know, they said is that that they were going to switch over. Um, they had informed the Urban League of that. And during that process of transitioning, some things happened with, with Forward Together New Orleans. Um, the Office of Inspector General subpoenaed some financial records, which then caused the the nonprofit to see um, to freeze their their payments. Yeah. Um, and, and that you know, that happened in the middle of, of last year, in the summer of 2022. And, and that immediately had some impacts on on programming, including the Jumpstart program, which had already been been funded um, through For It Together New Orleans. So, so that ceased operations in the middle of last year. But because most of the crisis intervention team, the crisis intervention team and most of the office was being funded through Urban League, things were able to kind of continue on. Um, but what it appears is that the office was unable to secure a new fiscal agent by the end of the year, um, to kind of be able to continue operations without, you know, laying off all the employees. Um, so, you know, when I checked in with the office at the beginning of this year, I had a conversation with the director who acknowledged that, that the CEA with their fiscal agent had lapsed, but told me at the time that everyone was still getting paid through what he said was leftover money from the Urban League. 
and, and that a lot of the work was continuing. Um, so after that conversation, I, I contacted the Urban League and, yeah. and you know, just said, what what is the what's the status? And um, they confirmed to me that they were no longer paying employees of the office, that the agreement had lapsed at the end of the year. And, uh, you know, they were no longer the office's fiscal agent. So then when I, I went back to the, the city who, who, you know, a spokesperson eventually acknowledged that, that, yeah, in fact, everyone had been laid off and that, that most of the programming operations were, were no longer operating. You mentioned that they were moving from Urban League to Forward Together New Orleans. It um, be remiss for us not to mention the, the relationship between the mayor and Forward Together New Orleans. So can you just quickly explain that? So Forward Together New Orleans was, was founded by the mayor um, and has been used kind of as a, as a fiscal agent to fund a lot of, so to fund some of her key social programs. So yeah, like I said, we, we saw that with the Jumpstart program. Um, there was a universal basic income pilot that the city had, had developed. Um, there was a program called Earn and Learn that was another workforce development program. So several of these social programs that, that the mayor had had developed um, were being funded through Forward Together New Orleans. And when the accounts were frozen, uh, you know, they were no longer able to, to pay for them. Can you give us a little context on because we'll get we'll we'll get back to the meat of the story, which is that this this program that was announced in 2021 to prevent gun violence and to address the problem of gun violence in New Orleans is now not being funded. The organization that was meant to take over from Urban League is also not being funded. Its its accounts are frozen. Where do we sit this year uh, and last year in in the context of gun violence in the city? Um, what's the, what's the, set the stage for us? Yeah. Gun violence in the city is, you know, worse than it's been in over a decade. Um, and we really saw a spike in gun violence during the pandemic. And this was a national trend, you know, cities all over in kind of the summer of, of 2020 saw, saw a pretty significant spike, but, you know, nationally it's kind of started to decline a bit. Um, and, you know, things, things are improving. Um, but that doesn't really seem to be the case in New Orleans yet. Um, like I said, last year was the deadliest year on record since, um, in terms of, uh, murders, you know, since 2004 Hmm. and in terms of rate, you know, going back even further to, I think 1997. So it's pretty bad. Um, and to not have these programs operating, I think, you know, regardless of how effective they were, I think it's not not having some sort of program to to kind of specifically address this issue. It's not great right now. So I think we're going to kind of see the city council and the city. The city council is now pushing the administration to kind of rethink this gun violence intervention strategy kind of and have instructed the Department of Health to come up with a plan for for violence intervention. Um, and I talked to Councilman J.P. Morrell. He's kind of been one of the biggest critics of, of the Office of Gun Violence Prevention um, and has argued that they really haven't shown that they're, they're doing enough to, to actually intervene. And he says he'd like this sort of programming to be done 
um, through the city's health department, as opposed to having this kind of standalone office um, funded through, you know, uh, outside organizations. So we'll see. I think we might see some movement on that in the next few weeks or months. Okay. And did the administration, did you approach them about this and get a response? Yeah, so the administration says they're working on a new CEA and that all the employees of the office are going to be rehired once it's signed. You know, I think there's a number of outstanding questions that I have that I haven't really gotten answers to yet. One basic one is if you've laid off everyone for a month and they're not getting paid, <laughs> are they going to be able to come back? Have they found other jobs? Um you know, what kind of provisions were, were in place to, to make sure that they were able to, to kind of, you know, stay, stay afloat during, during this time. And that's not entirely clear to me. Um, and, you know, the, the, the director of the program said, we're continuing to, to connect with people and provide services that we had, you know, connected with uh, before the CEA ran out. But I'm not so sure that that was the case pace and you know to the extent that um that these services were being provided what does this month hiatus you know or you know could could potentially be longer what did that mean for for the people who were receiving services from the office right um so those are sort of two big questions and obviously whether or not the city is able to get this new CEA in place um and get a new fiscal agent for the office is something that that uh, they say they're going to do, but but it's an open question. So right. I'll be definitely checking with them. And a story you just published Thursday, it appears that perhaps there are some potential jurors who are being illegally excluded from the jury pool. Can you explain what, what's going on? Sure. So the Louisiana State Legislature in 2021 changed uh, the state law that previously excluded anyone with a felony conviction from serving on juries. Um, And they changed it so that now, if you have a past felony conviction, if you've been off parole for the last five years and you're no longer, and you're not under indictment, um, then you should be able to serve on a jury. But in New Orleans, lawyers are alleging that the jury summonses that have been going out um, for the last 17 months since the law went into effect still say that you are not allowed to serve on a jury if you have been convicted of a felony. So what happened yesterday and what, what the story is about is that that uh, a court of appeal, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal, has halted a trial in New Orleans based on this argument that, that the public defenders put forward that, that the jury selection process was not in accordance with, the, with this new law and that is not representative. So the, fourth, the the Court of Appeal has not ruled on that yet, but what they did do was was halt halt the trial while they can um, make a decision on it. So I think I think what could happen is, if, if nothing else, I think we're going to see continued arguments um, either at the Fourth Circuit or they could tell the trial court to hold an evidentiary hearing on the issue, um, and that would really kind of provide an opportunity for attorneys to show that this is taking place and, and kind of get at what the impact might have been, you know, how many people who were, who should have been eligible to serve um, were excluded um, and what, you know, what is the impact of that on jury trials over the last, you know, year and a half. Right. 
Nick, do you think this is just a matter of just the administrative piece, just not keeping up with the law? In fact, I mean, for example, that that the little form that you have to fill out, somebody forgot to mention that you should take that piece out and reprint them or something. It's a very good question. <laughs> and I don't have the answer. Um, you know, I think that's certainly one possibility, although you would hope that the people in charge of sending out jury summons would keep up to date with the legal requirements of that. Come on. That's um, a minor issue. Yeah. Among, I mean, there were, there were, you know, attached to this filing to the fourth circuit, there were the actual summonses that, you know, were sent out for that, that show the requirements right on there that says, if you ha have a felony conviction, you are not able to, to serve. It's just not entirely clear at this point right. where the, uh, the misstep was. And, you know, yeah, like I said, there's still just a lot of a lot of information that, that we don't have yet. Right. OK. Well, you've been busy. Thank you for taking some time to talk about all this. Thank you. I'll see you in a week. All right. Thanks, Carolyn. OK, bye. Ugh. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. 